At work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription so i just put the lime in the coconut okay i'll try it uh I'll, yeah i'll call you in the morning oh i gotta go oh hey everybody this is Mick, and it is almost June of 2020. I, I sincerely hope things are, are okay where you are. It's been a challenge for me to find the time to create this episode, but I did it. Uh, I did it in between working from home, which is filled with my family, and there's uh, almost never a quiet moment. Even now, you can probably actually hear my washing machine. Uh, as it was suggested by someone on Twitter, maybe I should just do an episode about washing machines. So who knows? Maybe that'll be a fun one next month. Uh, this episode is not about washing machines, though this episode is titled Freight Train. But it's not about trains at all. That's kind of deceptive. Sorry if I fooled you. It's actually about a song called Freight Train, and that song connects both of the stories. The first story is about Elizabeth Cotton, and the second story is about a little band from Liverpool called The Quarrymen. There is a story that Elizabeth Cotton got to name herself on the day she started school. Her parents had a mess of kids, and supposedly they never really agreed on a name to call her when she was born in 1893. Or 1895. People disagree on her birth date, which makes sense considering that she didn't even have a name. Anyway, the family just kind of settled into calling her Lil' Sis, because she was the youngest sister. Of course, a moniker like that didn't work for the teacher who asked for the child's name on the first day of school. Lil' Sis had always liked the name Elizabeth, so that's what she told the teacher her name was. And for the rest of her long and eventful life, that's how she was known. Though many of her friends would one day call her by a nickname, Libba. Little could she have known when she was just a girl that the name Elizabeth Cotton would one day wind up in the Smithsonian be announced at the Grammy Awards, and even lend itself to a beautiful park in Syracuse, New York. There's another story about Elizabeth. Many years later, as an adult and a parent herself, she was working in a department store in Washington, D.C., when she encountered a young girl near the same age Elizabeth had been on that first day of school. This girl was lost and in tears because she had gotten separated from her mother while shopping. As any child or parent who has stressfully lived through this situation knows, it can be terrifying. But Elizabeth was kind and calm, and the girl, named Peggy, immediately trusted her. Together, the two set out to find the girl's mother. It didn't take long, but the chance encounter made history. Elizabeth Cotton obviously made an impression on Peggy's mom, a woman named Ruth Crawford Seeger, because before long, Elizabeth was working in their home, helping to take care of the three kids, cook and clean. 
They quickly bonded with her, and she made the most of her time there. The Seegers were a musical family. Father Charles was a musicologist. That's someone who studies music and how it develops in different cultures. He worked for universities and the federal government to help document and preserve the music of African American, Native American, Latin American cultures, and more. The mother of the family, Ruth, was a music teacher who published a book of children's songs. And all of the children were very interested in folk music, especially the oldest child. His name was Pete Seeger and he would be a famous musician on his own. For years, Elizabeth would share space in the home with a family whose world seemed to revolve around making sound. Someone was always learning, practicing, listening, writing, or singing something new. Little did they know that the woman in their midst was an incredible musician herself. Honestly though, she was so humble, she might never have told them. It wouldn't stay hidden forever though, as the days flowed by, Someone from the family found her playing one of the guitars in the home, and in a very unique style that they had never really heard before. Embarrassed, she apologized for touching their instrument, but they were more astonished by what they had just heard. Libba's family, back home in North Carolina, had been musical too. When she was a girl, her folks sang spirituals all the time, and her brother had a guitar and a banjo, which always seemed to call to Elizabeth. Whenever he was at work, she would sneak into his room to hear their marvelous sounds. This made her brother angry, and she was firmly told not to touch them again. But she couldn't help herself. Elizabeth loved the sound of the string instruments. She found them awkward because she was left-handed, though. Her solution was to hold them upside down, putting the low-sounding strings closer to the ground, with the high-sounding strings right up by her face. It was the opposite way that the instrument was intended, but she made it work. She plucked the strings with her fingers two or three at a time, which could create a counterpoint or two different melodic lines at the same time. It's not easy to do, but Elizabeth methodically learned to do it. When her brother's work schedule allowed, of course. Eventually, her brother moved out to start a life outside of the household, and he had the nerve to take his own guitar and banjo with him. <sighs> This left poor young Libba in quite a dither. In these days, kids would often work to help the family, which she did, but she also saved some of the money for a guitar of her own. $3.75, that is what her first guitar cost. And as she clearly remembered from that point on, her poor mother never got any peace and quiet. Every spare moment was filled with music, which sounds nice, but you gotta remember, Elizabeth was learning by teaching herself. Luckily, she was a quick study. When you spend that much time working hard on something, you are bound to improve. That's how it works. She put in the time, and before long, Elizabeth was not just playing guitar, but playing incredibly well in her own unique fingerstyle way. And she was also writing songs. One song she wrote when she was just 11 years old was called Freight Train. If you'd have told young Elizabeth that one day, decades later, her song Freight Train would be heard all over the world, she'd have thought you were pulling her leg. As she approached adulthood, she got married, had a daughter, and slowly drifted away from her guitar. It's a shame. There was pressure from other people to hang it up. Playing the blues, that's not something a lady should do. For years, she lived a not very musical life. Music still mattered to her, but not like it had and not like it would again when she would be much, much older. She made her home first in her native North Carolina, and then in New York, 
And then after a divorce, she moved to be closer to her adult daughter and grandchildren in Washington, D.C. And this is where she met the Seegers. And once she picked up that guitar in the Seeger house, she never set it down again. The Seeger family was connected. They knew when they heard Libba play that she was something special, a true artist. When that lost, tearful little girl Peggy was a grown woman, she traveled to England where she met lots of people who loved American folk music. So she shared some of the songs that she had heard from Libba, her old nanny, including Freight Train. Though Elizabeth had written it when she was just 11, around the turn of the century, nearly no one had heard it. As soon as some of these people an ocean away in England did, they made a record of it themselves. Maybe they didn't know to credit Elizabeth, or maybe they thought they could get away with calling the song their own. But before you knew it, Freight Train was a hit in England. And Elizabeth had no idea at all. American folk music was really popular there, a new style of music built mostly on African-American folk songs in the 1950s called Skiffle was really popular, and Elizabeth's song was perfect. Every Skiffle band in England played the song, including a little band called the Quarrymen. You'll learn about them in a few minutes. In her 60s, Elizabeth Cotton played her very first concert. She was a grandmother. She was someone who had worked as a domestic, which is the title for someone hired to help run a household. She is someone who had walked away from music for most of her life until that point, but it had bubbled up like a boiling tea kettle. The first concert was just the beginning. Before long, her talent carried her to stages at important events like the Philadelphia Folk Festival, the Newport Folk Festival, and the Smithsonian Festival. Everyone recognized Elizabeth was something real. She was honest, optimistic, and driven to make music. She had never truly thought to sell music. She wanted to make it. But because she was so talented, the sales came. In 1958, Elizabeth was around the age of 66 when Mike Seeger, another one of the kids that she had nannied, came to her house to record her playing so she could finally release a record of her music. Music was still pressed on big round black vinyl discs for people to buy at this time, and it was certainly a remarkable feeling for the woman to hold her own record in her hands. It was called Folk Songs and Instrumentals with Guitar, and finally it featured Elizabeth, the original writer, playing Freight Train. For the next few decades, Elizabeth didn't work in department stores or work as a nanny or do any of the regular work that she had done for most of her adult life. In fact, she'd never do anything like that again. She played music, sold records, made fans, and performed on stage, radio, and television. That 11-year-old girl in Carborough, North Carolina, would have never believed it. Her life was music. Luckily for everyone, her brother's forbidden guitar lit a fire that slowly burned in her for 50 years and then turned into a full-scale blaze for the next 30 Perhaps the most remarkable moment of her life came in 1985, when Libba was 93 years old. She heard her name called at the Grammy Awards, an international award presentation for the best and most important music of each year. The now great-grandmother had released an album which won the Grammy for Best Ethnic or Traditional Folk Recording. As you can imagine, it was quite a shock, and at first she thought she might not be able to go up on stage to accept the award, but she did. Ever the performer, ever the humble spirit, and ever the optimist, she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. If I had my banjo with me, I'd play you a tune. 
She passed away in 1987 at the age of 95. Her guitar is on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. When I saw it years ago, it was right next to Louis Armstrong's trumpet. I saw a lot of cool things that day, but Libba Cotton's guitar was my favorite. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals we share our world with. Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds. This month's guest is Marlena. Do your thing, girl. Hi, I'm Marlena from Buffalo, New York. Agrippina the Younger was a powerful woman in ancient Rome. She was at different times the sister, the wife, and the mother of an emperor. It was a dangerous position as very powerful women were considered bad women. Agrippina is seen as highly manipulative and didn't even shy away from killing other people for her own benefit. Historians believe that Agrippina's power was the reason her son Nero had her killed. Imagine that. Dang, that's like a soap opera. Hope everyone had a happy Mother's Day, by the way. Thank you so much. I love it. I wish I knew more about ancient history, but that's not the area that I focused on. But I love hearing about it. So thank you for sharing with us, Marlena. <clears throat> yeah, I, I put the lime in the coconut and it didn't really seem to do anything. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Hey, 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 quiz time, people. This episode, all of the questions have to do with music, and all of the answers come from past episodes. So how well have you listened? Question number one. In 1939, Franklin Delano Roosevelt hosted the King and Queen of England for the very first time in history. One of the events was a night of music, and a group called the Coon Creek Girls performed a song on the president's request. What kind of food was that song about? Biscuits. It was how many biscuits can you eat this morning, this morning? And of course, the answer is 49 and a ham of meat, if you remember that song. I recently read an interview that I hadn't found when we ran the story originally. It seems that King George had an unusual and perhaps unhappy look on his face during the show, which Lily Mae Ledford noticed. And she guessed that it was because 
Perhaps her sister had put a $20 bill in the hemline of her stockings, and as they played it, slowly worked down until it was down around her knee, and he could see that $20 bill, which is probably bad etiquette if you're around a king. Okay, question number two. Also on the bill that night in the White House was Marian Anderson. She is remembered for having sung My Country Tis of Thee in Washington, D.C. that very same year in 1939. But do you remember where that famous performance took place? It took place at the Lincoln Memorial after she was denied the opportunity to perform at the hall which was run by the Daughters of the Revolution. She would sing at the Lincoln Memorial again on the very same day that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Okay, question number three, your third and final question. Which Italian opera singer was the first musician to sell one million copies of a recording? It was the great Caruso, Enrique Caruso. The tenor made his first recordings in 1902 when recording was still pretty new technology. Because so many people wanted to hear those recordings, there was a huge boost to record player sales and many people had them in their homes for the first time ever. Can you imagine not being able to listen to music unless you heard it live or made it yourself? That was revolutionary. John Lennon was a pretty normal kid in the 1950s. He'd stand in front of the mirror, pretending to strum a guitar while singing the early hits of Elvis Presley. The whole time, he wished he had the real thing instead of just a tennis racket or whatever else he was pretending would be his instrument. It's something that every would-be musician has found themselves doing. Trust me. While growing up in Liverpool, England, John was always listening to music, but nothing electrified him like the new rock and roll that musicians were playing across the ocean in America. When he heard Elvis, his life changed. He quickly realized there was nothing he wanted to do more than make music. John lived with his aunt and uncle, who were his legal guardians, and he begged them for a guitar. And once John had a goal, he was like a hound dog, never losing the scent. And though they resisted at first, fearing that it would lead to a life unbecoming of a nice young British lad, he won in the end. But once he got that guitar, came the question of what to do with it. You have to learn how to play that thing if you want to have any fun with it. And though he was incredibly intelligent and quite artistic, he was not one for structured learning. Let's just say school was not his favorite thing. So lessons didn't really click with him either. He picked up what he could and tried to sing a few songs while strumming along to the sound of his own voice. He found it was hard to sound like Elvis alone in his room with a crummy guitar and not much experience, but he didn't let that get him down. Around the same time that he got this crummy guitar of his very own, a new fad swept England. It was called skiffle. If you know anything about jug band music, well, skiffle is very similar. Folk songs and ballads were sung with a fiery energy and accompanied by whatever instruments you could cobble together or even make on your own. Instead of a drummer, someone might drag a metal thimble across the ridged metal surface of a washboard, which was a tool people used to do their laundry. And instead of the low notes of a bass or a tuba, people would attach a broom handle to a wash tub or a big wooden box. A rope would be attached to both, and then when the player pulled back on the broomstick, it would tighten or loosen the strings, so when plucked, the sound would change. It was far from perfect. 
but it worked. Many of the songs skiffle bands played were American folk songs like Cumberland Gap, Mule Skinner Blues, and even a tune called Freight Train, which was originally written by 11-year-old Elizabeth Cotton decades before. John learned many of these songs because he quickly realized it would be a lot easier to form a skiffle band than a rock and roll band. Plus, everyone in England was in love with the music at the moment. In the blink of an eye, he tried to convince some of his school friends from Quarry Bank High School to start their very own skiffle band. They blinked their eyes in confusion as they listened. Most of them had never played an instrument in their lives. That's, you know, a pretty big part of being in a band. But John saw no real problem with this. They'd learn as they went, he countered. He convinced a few, and they decided to call themselves the Quarrymen. And they most certainly learned as they went. Some of the boys were more serious than others, but no one was as serious as John Lennon. It was everything to him, and in a few months, they made noise that actually sounded like music. It wasn't particularly good music, and they might not have played the right chords or even sung the right words, as band members would later recall. But they were having fun. Even if it was rough, it was still music, and John was obviously a great singer. He also knew that they had nowhere to go but up. They'd get better with time and more challenges. Before long, they entered competitions, printed business cards, and were always practicing or listening to records. Many times they'd learn songs off of the radio because the records were not available at the local store. In these cases, they'd write down the lyrics as fast as they could when they heard a song, and then they'd have to wait by the radio until the DJ played the song again when they'd try to catch more. It was nowhere near as simple as it might be today. The band got better and better. Despite being a skiffle band, John would usually sing some rock and roll songs too, which was new and exciting and sometimes angered the audience. But Elvis or Little Richard songs were really what he wanted to be singing, so he didn't pay much attention to any of that stodgy negativity. Each gig seemed to get bigger and more important to the boys. On July 6th, 1957, John and the Quarrymen excitedly got ready for a public performance, dressing in their dark pants and collared shirts. Usually, the annual festival, known as the St. Peter's Church Garden Fete, featured brass bands or marching bands, never a band playing pop music on guitars and such. But the mother of one of the Quarrymen had suggested the group perform because they could please the old and the young alike, and it probably helped that four of the boys had been baptized at St. Peter's. The annual festival began with a parade and the crowning of the year's Rose Queen. The rest of the day was a festival for the community. There was food, community booths, dog demonstrations, and music. When the quarrymen took the stage, they commanded everyone's attention. John, a teenager, had gotten much better as a band leader, and the group had come a long way to support his singing. Boys and girls, classmates and adults from the parish alike watched and danced as the boys blended skiffle and rock and roll between John's jokes. Off in the corner, they noticed their friend Ivan from school, and he was with a boy that none of them recognized. As soon as the performance was over, the two boys headed towards the band for introductions. The unfamiliar guy was named Paul McCartney. And as soon as John heard that he played guitar, his demeanor changed. At first, John was a bit threatened to meet a stranger who was supposedly as good as he was. It's a natural reaction, but an unnecessary one. 
A few minutes later, though, when John saw how talented Paul was, he began to have other thoughts. Paul had brought his own guitar along, and soon enough was seated on a chair surrounded by the band. With ease and confidence, he played some of John's favorite songs, some better than John could even play them. He was a great singer, but even more impressive to John, Paul actually knew the words to the songs. John would regularly just make them up because he couldn't remember. Before long, 15-year-old Paul McCartney had attracted a crowd of his own at the Little Festival. That night, John asked one of the other band members what he had thought of this new guy and whether he would be a fit for the band. His bandmate already knew what was going to happen. The quarrymen would become Paul and John. And the skiffle days were numbered. It took a while for that to happen, but in October that year, Paul McCartney joined the quarrymen on stage for the first time. He and John soon became inseparable. They'd spend afternoons learning new chords on their guitars, practicing harmony singing, or copying the newest rock and roll hits. The folk and skiffle tunes from the band's repertoire slowly disappeared, being replaced by more and more American rock and roll rhythm and blues. Once they got familiar with each other's voices, they also began to write songs together. They kept a notebook of songs, starting each page with the words, Another Lennon-McCartney Original. It's hard to believe, but some of the first songs they wrote would become hits just a few years later. Of course, that would be when the Quarrymen changed their name to The Beatles. Songs like Love Me Do and I Call Your Name were written when they were only teenagers in their parents' living room. Not long after Paul joined, he brought in another, even younger friend, 14-year-old George Harrison. Eventually, a guy named Ringo Starr would join the band, too. By the time these four guys were in their 20s, they'd be the most famous and arguably the most important pop musicians in the world, and perhaps in history. They toured the world, were on international television, and sold more records than just about anyone else ever. Just like when they were kids, they never stopped trying to be better. And though they'd grow apart as adults, the music they created always brought them the fun and excitement that it did when they were teenagers. The Beatles changed music and changed the world. And it happened because two boys met at a festival. Freight train, freight train, run so fast. Freight train, freight train, run so fast. Please don't tell what train I'm on. They won't know what route I'm going. When I'm dead and in my grave, no more good times here I crave. Place the stones at my head and feet And tell them all I've gone to sleep When I die, oh, bury me deep Down at the end of old Chestnut Street So I can hear old number nine As she comes rolling by Freight train, freight train, run so fast. Freight train, freight train, run 
moving so fast Please don't tell what train I'm on They won't know what route I'm going got a bunch of patreon people to thank which makes me really happy and really grateful thank you all so much support us on patreon.com uh, one of them is a song it's gonna be at the end and it's really good so stick around okay uh bridget thank you so much i am so glad that you are out there listening i also have a special shout out for fia and colin and if it's not for fia and colin then tell me who fia but i'm pretty sure it's for fia colin. and colin thank you so much fia and colin. oh and i have a happy birthday shout out for kennedy happy kennedy happy b day yeah birthday happy birthday kennedy i hope you're doing well thank you for listening i'm so happy glad that you are out there enjoy your special day Happy birthday to you. Uh, I also have a shout out for Penelope. 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 Thank you, Penelope. Penelope, thank you. And uh, Ken and Mary in Virginia. Ken and Mary. I have a message for you. Get back to work, chuckleheads. <laughs> Your dad told me to tell you that. Thanks, Ken and Mary. Better get back to work, though. Uh, and last but not least, I have a song for Peregrine in Brooklyn. Uh, and I'm super stoked about this. Peregrine's like fifth great grandfather invented some pens, uh, and Thomas Jefferson used them, which is super super cool. And uh, they even like gave me documentation and stuff about it. So that's part of the song. Look out for it. Everybody else, thank you, thank you for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This is the Past and the Curious. Uh, it's a pleasure to do this, and I look forward to talking to you very soon. Now buckle in because it's Peregrine. Whenever Peregrine sees a pair of friends Faces light up with a pair of grins His great-great-great-great-great-grandfather invented a pen And he sold a few to Thomas Jefferson I think that's so cool, I'm gonna sing it again that's the truth about Peregrine, my friends. That's the truth about Peregrine. Whenever Peregrine sees a pair of friends, faces light up with a pair of grins. His great-great-great-great-great-grandfather invented a pen Sold a few to Thomas Jefferson That's the truth about Peregrine And that's the truth. Now a quick word from our friends at ListenWise. Is remote learning wearing out your patience? No school, no camp, no playdates. Are you a teacher with students who have limited access to Wi-Fi or laptops, and you're running out of ideas to keep your kids engaged in high-quality but fun learning? 
the Listen Wise News Bites podcast is perfect for you. The News Bites podcast combines NPR news stories selected for young listeners with instructional activities. Listen on Wi-Fi or download for an easy offline way to engage young learners with fun news, weird news, and some serious news. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.